All right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. So glad to sing with you this morning. Man, that was, that was good. Good singing. Uh, good to be uh, joining our voices together in those uh, proclamations of truth, like deep, solid gospel truth. It's good to, good to sing with you. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? I hope you do. If not, I hope you'll find a Bible close to you and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 is where we'll be for the next several weeks. Last week, we looked at a heavy passage that should awaken all of us to the danger, the grave danger, in fact, of walking away from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and going back to the world. With pastoral outrage, Peter warns that the last state for those who make that move will be worse than the first, and that it would be better to have never known the way than to know the way and then walk away. That's a heavy word for us. That's a heavy word for us in this room, especially who have heard. We have heard the truth. We have heard the gospel. We know many have professed to believe. So it's a heavy word for us to hear that to walk away from it would put us in a worse position than we were to start with. It'd be better to have never known than to know it and forsake it. Jim Shaddix did a good job of capturing the pastoral concern for folks like us today when he said Peter's words in chapter 2 verse 20 are indeed a reminder that things like walking an aisle, making a profession of faith, praying a prayer, inviting Jesus into your heart, joining a church, or even being baptized don't guarantee entrance into heaven. Peter has taught throughout the letter that only those who continue to live a life of godliness will get eternal life. Perseverance is the mark of whether a person has the real deal. If you are truly saved, If you are truly saved, you will endure. If you endure, you are truly saved. But if, like these apostates, you have escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet are again entangled in these things and defeated, then something is amiss with the genuineness of your professed faith. So we wrestled with that, we chewed on that, we considered that last week, and all of it should cause us to pray. Should cause us to pray for those who are wandering away, those who are, are leaving the narrow road back to the broad road that leads to destruction. We need to pray for them that they would see the filth of the world for what it is, that they would remember the grace of God in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would get sick of the world and homesick for the kingdom of God and return like the prodigal did. We need to pray also for ourselves that God will guard us from the lures and the enticements of fleshly lusts that he would guard us from desiring those things more than we desire him, that he would keep us satisfied in Christ alone, and that he would hold us fast when our faith is weak. We need to pray for those who would wander away. We need to pray for ourselves, and we need to preach. We need to preach the hope of the gospel. We need to preach the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We need to speak often and loudly of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. We need to speak about the sinfulness of man, that there is no escaping judgment. Mere denial of judgment will not suffice to escape from judgment. The holy God will punish the sinful man. But God has made a way for the sinful man to be reconciled to the holy God through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived the life that we cannot live and died the death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. We need to speak loudly about the sacrifice of Christ in the place of sinners. And we need to speak loudly and often about the necessity of repentance and faith as a response to that good news. 
that we receive salvation that comes by grace through faith, by trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by turning away from our sins. We need to preach loudly and often that there is hope and there is hope in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. There's hope nowhere else. We need to pray, we need to preach, and we need to persevere. We need to be those who do not turn back who do not give up, who do not give in, who do not go the way of the world and the way of the false teachers. We need to be of those who cling to Jesus because we recognize that he is our only hope. No turning back, no turning back is what we sang last week. Well, this week we're going to move into a new section of 2 Peter, but Peter is not going to leave his pastoral heart in chapter 2. No, this whole letter, this whole letter, in fact, both letters of Peter have a pastoral tone, even though the tone varies throughout the letters. What I mean is this, the harshness with which Peter addressed the false teachers and delivered the warning about walking away, that's pastoral. That's a pastoral tone. That harshness is pastoral. And the encouraging tenderness with which he will remind the beloved that we will see this week is also pastoral. Like that's a pastoral tone as well. That gentleness and that affection comes from a pastor's heart. You see, a good shepherd knows when to shout the warnings with harshness, and when to speak with gentleness, words of comfort. So the tone today is going to be different than the tone has been over the last month or so in Second Peter chapter 2. But it still springs from a heart of love and concern for the audience. And I want to get that tone right today. I want to get that tone right. I want to, I want to speak as one who speaks to the beloved today and reminds them of the basic, simple gospel truths that we rejoice in and that we sing about. So let's read together today, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're only going to cover verses 1 and 2 today. We'll pick back up in verse 3 next week. Listen to God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, there is none like you. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone worthy of our devotion and our obedience. For you alone are God. You are the one who has created us. You are the one who has redeemed us. You are the one who sustains us. You are the one who will take us home to spend eternity with you. And all of, all of this is your work accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Help us remember today. By the Holy Spirit, remind us of things we have previously learned and let us never forget. We also ask that you would make us wary of any teachers who would bring us new things that differ from what you have given us in your word through your apostles and the prophets. Make us wary also of any teacher who would seek to put distance between us and your word. Father, give us discipline to engage your word daily. Give us insight into your word so that we may understand it and give us submission to it that we may obey all for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, look at verse 1, first part of verse 1 at least. It says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. Let's start right there with that word, beloved. In fact, uh, circle it, underline it, highlight it. It's a super important word. The phrase, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, signals the beginning of a new section of Second Peter. 
but it also sets the tone of this section in 2 Peter. The Greek word is agapatoi, and in that word you hear a familiar Greek word agape in there. That's the root. The root of this word is that word for self-sacrificing love that seeks the good of another. And so Peter's use of this word is a helpful declaration and a reminder of at least two facets of his audience's belovedness and consequently our belovedness. He reminds his audience that they are first loved by God. They are beloved of God and brothers and sisters, so are we. We are loved by God. And this love of God is demonstrated to us most clearly in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But listen to verse 8. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get his logic there? He says, someone would barely even die for a righteous man. Maybe for a good man someone would die, but that's unlikely. But God's love is demonstrated in this way. That while we were still sinners, not righteous men, not good men, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's outrageous, isn't it? And that is outrageously good news. The death of Jesus is a demonstration of the love of God. It's not just a demonstration of God's love. Right? It's also a demonstration of his justice. It's a demonstration of his righteousness. But let us never forget, friends, that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is a demonstration of God's love for us, which should blow our minds that he, the Holy One, would love us, the sinful ones, and would make such a great sacrifice for us. See how great a love the Father has for us? That we would be called children of God? And such we are. Why? Because Christ died in our place. He reminds his audience that they are beloved, beloved of God. In Christ, friends, you are beloved of God. Secondly, though, they are loved by Peter. They are loved by Peter. Peter loves them. He calls them the beloved, not just because they are in Christ and loved of God, but because they are Peter's beloved. He cares for them. And that comes across in a bunch of different ways in this letter. Look at chapter 3. Just in chapter 3, he's going to use this language of beloved three times. In verse 8, he says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Don't let that fact escape you, beloved. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, in, by him in peace, spotless and blameless. He loves these people. And in verse 17, he communicates it again. He says, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. He loves them, and so he wants to see them continue the course. They are loved by God, and we see that in Christ. And they are loved by Peter, and we see that in this correspondence to them, that he is caring for their souls. And it's not just this correspondence. He used the same language in 1 Peter. In fact, look at it, look at it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He, he calls them to this action as his beloved brothers and sisters, his beloved children in the faith. He uses the same language in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Beloved. 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So even as he speaks to them about the fiery ordeal that is coming upon them, the persecutions that they will face, he reminds them that he loves them. He reminds them that God loves them in Christ. He reminds them that they are beloved. It is his love for them that compels him to write these things. It's his love for them that compels him to write the instructions and the encouragements and the directives, all of it. He loves them and wants to see them faithfully walk with Jesus all the way to the end, no matter what opposition comes their way, whether it's persecution or false teaching. In his love, Peter is calling them to action, to faithful obedience. Brothers and sisters, I love you. Like Peter loves these people, I love you. Joe and Dylan, Pastor Joe and Pastor Dylan, we love you. And so we bring you encouragement. We bring you instruction. We bring you commandment and directive from the Lord. We love you. We want to walk with you. We want you to walk with Jesus all the way to the end. And so we labor for you in prayer and in preaching and in service. We labor for you just like Peter did for his audience because we want to see you finish the race. I think even from this first bit of the text, what we need to take away is we're loved. We are loved. We are loved by God. We are loved by spiritual leaders. In the church, we are loved. Now, before we move on, there's one other thing at the beginning of verse 1 that I want to quickly address, and that's this business about being the second letter, this being the second letter. This is the second time I'm writing to you. And the simplest reading of this is to see 1 Peter as the first letter and 2 Peter as the second letter, right? But as always, there are some folks who take a different stance And their different stance is not altogether outrageous, as there is obviously a letter to the church at Corinth that we do not have. And Paul makes reference to it, a lost letter to the church at Corinth that we're not familiar with, but they evidently were. So there's some people that would say there's also a lost letter of Peter, that by talking about this second time, he's talking about something other than 1 Peter. Maybe that's the case. There's another option where people argue that 2 Peter actually ended at the end of chapter 2, as we have it in our text, and that chapter 3 is a third letter that was just kind of merged in uh, to what we have in our Bibles as 2 Peter. That's all interesting, and you might want to dig into it someday. Maybe you can write your thesis on this matter about what is the second letter, what is the third letter, what do we have. Uh, Maybe you spend your life writing about that, observing it. But here's what I want us to get today. Let's go with 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and let's be confident that God has given us in the Bible everything we need. Let's let's be confident that the word of God, as we have it, is completely sufficient. That if, if there is a letter missing, we don't need it to follow him. We don't need it to believe in him. We don't need it to have eternal life. What he has given to us is absolutely sufficient. I'm going to say that again so that you can say amen because that's important. We need to be confident that what he has given to us in the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice for us. Okay. Verse 1 says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. And then he goes on and says, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, as we look at verses 1 and 2, the theme of this section could easily be summed up in one word. That is, remember. 
In fact, maybe write that in the, in the margin there by verses 1 and 2. Remember, remember, remember. He lays it on really thick about the importance of remembering. He says, this is the second letter. This is not the first letter, so I'm calling you to remember some of the things I wrote to you in the first letter. He says, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. He says later, remember the words. Remember the words that were spoken beforehand. It's just, it, he just heaps up words about remembering here. Remembering is not just a feature of 2 Peter, verses chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remembering can easily be pointed as a theme of the entire Bible, right? Especially as we read the Old Testament. Think about how many stories in the Old Testament have a command to remember. Think about how many stories in the Old Testament are actually there so that the people of God will remember the work of God. Like think about, why do, hey mom and dad, why do we take a day off every week? Oh, so that we'll remember how God created everything that existed in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. That's why we take a day off every week so we can remember. Oh, mom and dad, why is there a big pile of rocks over there by that river? Oh, that's where Achan stole some stuff that he shouldn't have stolen and hid it from God. And God found him out and they stoned him to death there. And so you don't, you don't want to do like Achan. You want to remember the sin of Achan and not follow his path. Or why is that pile of rocks there? Oh, that's where, that's where God brought us through the river. He, he made us able to cross on dry land. In fact, those, those rocks, that pile of rocks, those were in the middle of that river. We picked them up as, the, as God brought us across, and we made a pile of them so that we remember his faithfulness unto us. People of God in the Old Testament would say, why do we go to Jerusalem for that festival every year? Why do we go up to Jerusalem so often? So that we'll remember the faithfulness of God to us. Oh, mom and dad, why is that lamb in the living room with us? Why, why every, every year bring a lamb to the living room for a couple weeks and then kill it and put its blood on the door and eat it? Why do we do that all so that you'll remember? So that you'll remember the faithfulness of God to deliver us from certain death by the blood of the lamb. Why? Mom and Dad, why do we live in a tent for a couple weeks every year? It's not a great time of the year to live in a tent, but we do it. Why do we live in the tent? Oh, so that we'll remember the goodness of God to us and his faithful provision for us. All of these things God has given certain rhythms and patterns and exercises in the Old Testament so that his people would remember his work among them. But that's not just an Old Testament thing. We have regular reminders today. As new covenant believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have regular reminders, maybe not in the form of holidays and ceremonies like the ancient Jews, although we do have those, right? We do have some of those. Every year at Christmas, we remember the incarnation Every year at Easter, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we celebrate baptism, we remember the new life that is brought to us by grace through faith. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice of Christ in our place. He's given us holidays and ceremonies to remember, but he's also given us weekly gatherings to remember. Why do we get together on Sunday to remember the resurrection? to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over sin. Every week we get together to remember, to remember the basic truths of the gospel and rehearse them as we sing and study them as we examine his word. He's also given us daily disciplines, our daily Bible reading, so that we will remember, so that we will not forget. He's given us all these things designed to stir up our minds by way of reminder. To stir up our minds by way of reminder. We need those reminders, right? Jim Shaddix, again, has just a pastoral heart that I want, to, I want to relate to when he says, while believers should always be learning new things about their faith, 
and discovering new ways to serve the Lord, we also need to be reminded of basic spiritual truths. And we never outgrow that need. While the gospel is still embedded in the database of our minds, it can cease to have an active influence over us. Embedded in the database of our minds, but cease to have an active influence over us, that is especially true. When we neglect his word, when we neglect the church as it gathers together, the gospel may be still embedded in our minds, but it will cease to have an active influence in our lives, and we don't want that. One of the most troubling trends in church attendance over the last 20 years has been the declining frequency of church attendance. You can chart this. You can chart it here at First Baptist Harrisburg. It's not, we're not immune to this. There are basically the same number of people coming to church as there was 20 years ago. They're just coming less often. They're just coming less often. So people that were at church four out of four Sundays a year are suddenly at church three out of four Sundays a year or two out of four Sundays a year or one out of four Sundays a year. They're still coming. They're just not coming very often. And that's tragic and dangerous, in fact. What would happen if you cut your diet by 25% or 50% for the next five years? Not good things. You may think, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm slimming down, I'm getting in shape. No, you will not survive if you cut your diet 25% or 50% over the next five years. Or what if you cut your sleep by 25% or 50% over the next six months? How do you think you would feel then? Or what if you cut your oxygen intake by 25% or 50%? You would die. And yet so many people are denying themselves ordinary means of grace that God has provided in the gathering of his church for small group Bible study and accountability and fellowship, for corporate singing, for the proclamation of God's word. They're denying themselves that by 25, 50% and think they will continue to walk a healthy Christian life. It's dangerous. That's what I want to say. It's dangerous. The neglect of life-sustaining provision is deadly. And so gather together with the church. Be involved in personal spiritual disciplines so that you'll be reminded of the basic gospel truths. In some sense, that's the essence of my job, right? In some sense, the essence of my job is to be constantly reminding you of basic spiritual truths. And these basic spiritual truths are what will stir up your sincere mind. The language that Peter uses here is interesting. Stir up your sincere minds by way of reminder. That word sincere and the idea behind it is interesting, probably connecting back to the last few weeks and the influence of the false teachers. Look at the way Gene Green describes it. He says his intent, that is Peter's intent, is to awaken their pure understanding or their sincere minds. That is their understanding or way of thinking that has not been contaminated by the deceit and corruption of the false teachers. Their way of thinking that has not been contaminated by the deceit and corruption of the false teachers. So let me say it like this. The antidote... For the contamination that comes through the false teachers and their corrupt teaching and the lure of filthy lust is simple. It's the simple, sincere, pure, powerful truth of God's word. You want the, you want the antidote to the false teachers and their filthy lust temptation? It's the pure word of God. It's the pure spiritual milk that we long for. That's the antidote. That will stimulate your sincere mind. That will influence your heart. That will impact your life in the way to live in a way that honors God. And that happens here. As we study God's word, it happens here 
as we gather together as his people. Stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's what we're here to do. And we did it big time in singing today. You realize the gospel truth that you sang today? Even that really simple song at the end that you learned when you were just a little kid, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, he loves me. The Bible tells me so. Man, that is solid, solid truth that we need to be reminded of. And we get that when we're together. Look at verse 2. He says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Here, Peter gets into the subject of their remembrance. What does he want them to remember? Namely, he wants them to remember the word of God. The word of God. Look at how he describes it. First, he calls it the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Now, it's best for us not to limit that to Isaiah through Malachi in the Old Testament. When Peter talks about words spoken by the holy prophets, he's not just talking about those last books of the Bible, Isaiah through Malachi, the prophets. No, no, no. It's better to understand that as a reference to the entire Old Testament. Peter's consistently been using language of the words by the prophets to refer to the entire Old Testament. Peter wants you to remember, he wants us to remember the word of God in the Old Testament. And that's important for us. It's important for us that we remember the word of God in the Old Testament. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament when we finish up with 2 Peter. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament, particularly in a study of Psalms, uh, working out the details of that still, but we're going to spend a significant amount of time in the book of Psalms once we finish 2 Peter because the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it's profitable to us, and we want to study it. He also not just speaks of the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, but also the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And there's a ton to unpack there. First, Peter is making clear that the commandment is of the Lord and Savior. Right? The commandment of the Lord and Savior. That is, Jesus is the source of this word. Jesus is the origin of this word. That's the first thing. Second thing is Jesus' commandment is spoken by your apostles. In other words, the word of Jesus comes through these men who bear his authority as ones who were sent out, right? The commandment of Jesus through your apostles or by your apostles. The fact that he calls them your apostles and not just the apostles indicates that he's talking about the ones who brought the commandment to them in the first place. Maybe Peter himself who brought the word to them or maybe Paul, he's going to make a reference to Paul in a little while, but they are your apostles, your apostles who brought the commandment of Jesus to you. Third thing is by using the word command here, he is pointing to the moral expectations that come from the gospel. The moral expectations that come from the impact of the gospel. On one level, the command of the Lord and Savior, the command of Jesus is to repent and believe. Right? On on, on one level, the gospel is a command. It's not a a proposition. It's not even really a mere invitation It is a command. Repent and believe. You either obey and repent and believe or you disobey and live in rebellion, in sin and unbelief. So on the one hand, the command of the gospel is to repent and believe. The, The gospel is a command. On another level, I think Peter is showing us that those who are repenting and believing, those who have been truly converted, those who have been made new and saved by God's grace, 
will live in a way that honors him, in, in a way that is different from the lost world, in a way that is holy and righteous. You don't live as a holy and righteous one in order to get saved, but that's how one lives once they have been saved. Those who have been converted will live in a way that brings honor to him. Dick Lucas said this, what these verses confirm is that Peter is still concerned with the issue of right belief leading to right behavior. Right belief leading to right behavior. We've been seeing, we've been seeing that same principle in the negative form from the false teachers. Their wrong doctrine is leading to wrong living, right? They have denied the return of Christ. They have denied uh, the, the eternal judgment. And therefore they live in ways that do not bring honor to God. Wrong thinking, wrong doctrine, wrong theology leads to wrong living. Right thinking, right doctrine, right theology leads to right living. That's what Peter is teaching us. Peter wants the opposite for his audience as is being displayed in the false teachers. He wants them to think rightly and live rightly as a result. Now I also want to mention that in this passage, in fact in this whole letter, in fact in both letters of Peter to the church, there is a focus on the return of Christ. As he's talking about the word of the holy prophets, the command of the Lord Jesus, delivered through the apostles, there's probably a particular focus on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire context of 2 Peter has been eschatological. It's had a view toward the end of days and the return of Christ. The false teachers have been denying it. They've been denying the final judgment and therefore living however they please, Peter is saying, no, 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 Christ is really coming back. No, 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 there really will be judgment. There really will be salvation in that day. And so you need to believe in him and live as those who believe in him. So it may be that when Peter is talking about here about the word through the holy prophets and the command of Christ, that maybe he's zooming in particularly on the word of the prophets about the return of Christ and the word of Christ about the return of Christ. It may be that, that he's got that particular view, and I think that fleshes itself out as we continue on in chapter 3. So it may be, as John Piper says, that when he talks about the Old Testament prophets, they are predicting the return of Christ like in Malachi chapter 4. When he says, Behold, the day that comes burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, speaks of a day to come when there will be judgment for those evildoers and there will be salvation for those who believe and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of that. And it may be, as Piper says, uh, that when he speaks of the commandment of the Lord and Savior... He's thinking about Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. So both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself and certainly the apostles spoke of the return of Jesus. And, and I need to say that because look at verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. After he says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want you to remember the word of God through the, through the prophets and through the apostles and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
So there has to be, part of, why, part of why he's saying, I want to stir you up. I want you to remember what the prophet said. I want you to remember what Jesus said. I want you to remember what the apostles said. Has a particular, particular lean toward the return of Christ. The subject matter seems to be that. So let's not forget that. But whatever the specifics, whatever the specifics Peter is talking about when he says, I want you to remember the word of God. This is what I know. This book is what we need. The Bible is what we have always needed. And it is what we will always need. What we do not need is a new thing. What we do not need is a clever thing. What we do not need is a different thing. What we need is the old, old thing. What we need is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What we need is the eternal truth of the word of God. If we are going to stay the course, if we are going to finish the race, if we are going to worship the Lord faithfully, if we are going to live for him fully, if we are going to be obedient, we're going to have to keep turning to the book. We cannot, we must not stray from the centrality of the word of God. We want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want you to remember what God has said in his word. We must not stray from the centrality of the word of God, and we are always in danger of doing just that. We are always in danger of walking further and further away from God's word. There's a lure outside of God's word that is pulling us away, that is enticing us away. That's what we talked about in chapter 2 over and over again. There is this lure, and what I want you to know is the forsaking of God's word doesn't happen overnight. Right In a church, even in a life, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not as if one day you're committed to the authority and the sufficiency and the inspiration of God's word. It's not as if one day you sit yourself under its authority and submit yourself to it and obey it, and the next day you say, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. That, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works in a life. That's not the way it works in a church or a denomination. The way it works is much more subtle than that. It's to minimize the importance of God's word. It's to set it off to the side of the gathering of the church. It's to say things like, I know what the Bible says, but we've learned some new things since it was written uh, that seem to contradict what it says. It's these small little steps away from the authority and sufficiency of God's word. And those little steps, let me tell you, this is how tricky the enemy is. Those little steps away from the word of God happen usually motivated by some Christian virtue. Right? The, the steps away from submission to God's word and obedience to God's word happen in the name of love. Happen in the name of compassion happen in the name of sympathy or something like that. And so you feel good about taking those steps away because you feel like you're doing a Christian thing by walking away. No, 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 that's always a bad move. Let me, let me say it like this. Walking away from the Bible, even one step away from the Bible is a step toward the broad road. One step away from the word of God is a step toward apostasy. It's a step toward destruction. It's a step in the parade of the false teachers. And the best way to not take those steps, the best way to not take steps away from the word of God is to be regularly, daily, corporately walking down the narrow road in submission to, in obedience to the word of God, right? You don't want to walk away from the book. Walking away from the book could be walking away from Jesus and that doesn't lead to life. 
So we want to be engaged daily, privately, weekly, corporately in submitting to the word of God. Let me say it like this. Churches need pastors who will resist the lure of the world to play to their audience, who will resist the lure of the world to seek laughs and to entertain. Churches need pastors who will give them a steady diet of the word of God. Churches need pastors who will open the book, explain the text, and apply it to their lives. That's what the church needs. And there are a lot of churches in need. Like all around us, there are a lot of churches in need. In fact, you know, last year, at the end of last year, I was all excited because there was a local church who was without a pastor, and several of our guys were going to preach there, and we did it twice, right? And it was, it was incredible and good. They went and did expositional preaching. They, they preached through books of the Bible. That's happening again right now at a different local church. A different local church that is without a pastor today is week one of seven weeks of men from FBC going and preaching the word of God there. Uh, they're going to preach through Titus. In fact, Pastor Joe is there to kick it off uh, today. And I think Matt's going next week, right? Yeah. So pray for these guys. That, that's what churches need. They need men who will open the book, explain the text, and apply it to people's lives. And that's what our guys are going to do. That's what the church needs. And they're are a lot of churches in need. Like there is, a, there is a massive shortage of pastors coming down the pike. There are a lot of guys that are older than me and ready to retire, and there aren't a lot of guys that are younger than me ready to step in and, and preach. And so I want to put that in front of you and say maybe the Lord is going to stir somebody in this room up to say, I'm next, I'm next. God's calling me out. I can open the book. I can explain the text. I can apply it to people's lives. I can serve them and love them and tend them as a shepherd does his sheep. Maybe the Lord is going to use this today uh, to stimulate someone to say, I'll be next. What I know is this. The Bible is what we need. It's what we need. It's what we've always needed. It's what we will always need. To neglect it is to like turn down the oxygen in our lives. To neglect it is like to turn off the food and to get no sleep. We will not survive. We will not survive. God is intended to feed us through his word and build his church through his word for his glory. So here's the application from today. From these two verses, number one, rejoice because you are loved. I guess it's a smile about that for a second. Rejoice because you are loved in Christ. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. You are beloved. You're beloved of God. He loves you. He shouldn't. You're not lovely. I'm not lovely. It's not as if he looked at me and was like, that's the one. That's a, he's so perfect. He's so good. I want to have him. No, he looked at me in the muck and the mire. That's the one. I'll give my son for him. Man, that's crazy. And yet that's who we are. In Christ, that's who we are. We are beloved of God. Listen, if you're not in Christ, that's who you can be. Because all of us who, who, who say, I am beloved of God, once we're not. All, all of us who are on the inside now are, were once on the outside, lost and desperate and hopeless. And he rescued us and he brought us in and he showed us his love. And there's nothing like it. And maybe today he'll show you that kind of love as well. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ and become the beloved. In Christ is who you are. And in the church is who you are. You are loved. I mean, look around this room and think of the people who love you in this room. Think of the ways these people have loved you in this room. 
Think of the ways they have encouraged you and helped you and prayed for you. Think about the ways they have provided for you. Think about the ways they have just walked alongside you. Maybe they don't ever have anything great to say that changes your life, but they're there. Think of how weird it would be if we came in this room and we were the only ones. That doesn't make any sense. Think of if you came in this room and you were the only one. That wouldn't be church, would it? No, 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 but we don't. We come in and we're, we're together. We see each other and we receive encouragement and accountability, sometimes rebuke and discipline. But we're loved in the church. That's what love does. Love cares enough to warn and correct and discipline. And in the church, you are loved. So rejoice. You're loved. I think a lot of people feel like nobody loves them. I think they're like disposed to that. Nobody, nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. Listen, if you are in Christ, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That, that could, couldn't get better than that. He loves you. And if you were in the church, we love you. We love you. We don't display it perfectly all the time. We might not always like you, but we love you. And that's a beautiful thing. Rejoice because you are loved. Number two, remember the basics. Remember the basics. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like if you just walk out of here today with that, that's probably enough. Don't get lured away by some new thing, some different thing, some clever thing. Rather lean in to the reminders of the basic truths of the gospel. Lean in to those reminders as we sing them, as we consider them in small groups, as we uh, worship together in our daily readings. Let's lean in and remember the basics. And then thirdly, let's return to the book. Let's return to the book. You know, I often talk to you about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in reminding us of things that we have previously been taught, right? That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. It's outlined in the scriptures. He reminds us of things that we've previously been taught. I spent all week considering this text, and this morning, this morning, in like pre-dawn, pre-waking, as I'm enjoying the best nine minutes of sleep in several nine-minute increments, you know, the, you know the thing I'm talking It's the best nine minutes of the night, over and over again. As, I, as I'm laying there and I'm thinking about the day, the Holy Spirit reminded me of this text in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, that says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. We don't need a new road. We need the old road. The ancient path. Walk in that. And it'll get you home. Andrew Peterson wrote a song inspired by that verse when he says, go back. He's written to his son. It's a fantastic song. He says, go back. Go back to the ancient paths. Lash your heart to the ancient mast. And hold on, boy, whatever you do, to the hope that has taken hold of you. And you will find your way. You will find your way back home. See, the good way is an old way. And the narrow road is an ancient road. So walk in it, and you will find your way. And that happens by spiritual disciplines. That happens in the gathering of the local church. It happens as we sit under the authority of God's word. He will show us the old road, and it will take us home. Let's stand together and pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to rejoice today that we are loved by you and loved by your people, and that's hard for some of us to hear. It's hard for, us to, for some of us to embrace, 
We recognize that we are not lovely. And so we pray today that you will overwhelm that, overwhelm that tendency in us by your grace to see your great love for us in Christ, your great love for us in the church, and that we will rejoice because we are loved. This is amazing, and we want to celebrate it. We pray for men and women and boys and girls who don't know about that love yet. They're on the outside, desperate, lost, dead in their trespasses and sins. But you can change that like you did for us, and we pray that you would today. That you would open their eyes to your holiness, open their eyes to their own sinfulness, open their eyes to the sacrifice of Christ in their place. And, oh, Father, give them faith to trust in Christ. Give them repentance to turn away from sin. And let them rejoice that they are loved. Father, help us as your people to remember the basics. Not to go chasing after new things or clever things or different things, but to lean into the reminders of the old things. Help us to do that by returning to your book over and over. That we'll go back to the ancient path. That we'll recognize that the good way is an old way, that the narrow road is the ancient road, that we would walk in it and find our way home by your grace, and that we would do it together, that we would walk that ancient narrow road together, holding hands, encouraging one another along, living as your people for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name.